The morning smelled like oil and heat. It was just on dawn. Pallid, lemon-yellow light filtered through palms and banyans into the streets of the suburb of Bandra. I'd spent only a few hours laid out on a thin mattress, unsettled by sound and humidity, overtired from a full day of travelling. I'd just been bobbing around on the surface of the sea of sleep. On the other side of the room was a woman with a thin sheet twisted around her as if she'd dressed in a sari over her pyjamas. And painted upon the wall above her was a Sanskrit blessing of sorts. It came from one of the old sacred texts. It said, Prano Berat. She daubed it up there in big bubble writing, white text against a gaudy shade of green. The words meant, life is immense. I vaguely understood that sprawled around me, in various directions, was a city with millions and millions of people in it. There were all sorts of mechanical noises coming from several floors below, but the thing I noticed first was the racket made by a flock of dark birds all talking over the top of one another drowning out even the shouts of however many human souls were beneath us. I'd arrived at midnight and my friend had immediately made for me a mug of chai, but a line of ants filed in from a crack in the roof directly into the sugar bowl, and so they floated in my tea like black human seeds. And when I stepped into the bathroom to take a piss, there was a pigeon set into a niche of broken plaster in the wall, perfectly protected in its impromptu nest. So thus far I felt that I knew the non-human inhabitants of Mumbai best. But that would soon change. Shortly after waking up I stepped out quietly. Downstairs there was a purveyor of dairy goods called the Welcome Milk Centre. It reminded me of the stories of Krishna I'd read. Krishna, the shadowy Hindu deity, a shrewd and sneaky lover, a flute player, and an addict to sweets and butter. I took a pint of a concoction called masala milk to which I would soon be hooked, a kind of thick shake with nuts and spices mixed in. There was a South Indian restaurant next door, Shiv Saga, and there I sipped black coffee and ate a paper-thin rice pancake stuffed with potatoes dipped into a couple of different delicious sauces. And there, over breakfast, I took my first notes in a journal that before too long would be stained with turmeric and grease. Across the road, a vendor had various newspapers spread out on the footpath. I picked up a copy with articles in English and dawdled down the hill, walking into my shadow so that I might hit the waterfront. The original people of this shore had lived off fishing and salt collecting. Several rivers at once had poured unimpeded into the bay here. And in fact, what appears on today's maps to be an overpopulated peninsula was previously a series of islands, which have since been cast together with cement. I didn't know any of this yet, and I could sense none of it. Nowadays, it takes some imagination to strip away the metropolitan layers 
and wholly picture the body of water that the Portuguese navigators once called a bombaia, a good bay. But somewhere beneath the crust of the city, beneath the piles of rock and tetrapods that seemed to hold the reclamation in place, and the detritus of paper and plastic rubbish that drifts on the gentle tides, and that slick of filth coating the sea just offshore. Beneath all that there are mud flats, swamps, channels. Surely there is the memory of the nests of coots and swamp hens and rollers, the haunts of fish and amphibians, the places where humans and other animals have met for millennia, prompting poetry, making for a much richer life. I let my first impressions sink in, knowing they'd soon be obsolete. Mold spanned the exterior walls of most buildings. Tropical flowers and fruit formed on trees for which I had no names. Outside countless apartments, networks of bamboo scaffolding had been artfully arranged, and satellite dishes tilted like sunflowers towards the dawn. Cows ambled about aimlessly, magnificent in their garlands of marigold. Dishevelled and unloved dogs scurried here and there. In the eaves of a building I saw a green bird which eyeballed me like a spy, and then it slipped off its perch to swoop at an insect. Down at the reclamation rods and nets were cast off the grubby shore for fish with hollow flanks. Kids scrounged for scraps like kids do. Some of their mothers combed the tide line with them, or else carried their own heavy burdens, breeze blocks or laundry tubs or stacks of dishes. A butterfly came through, an eye-catching symbol of beauty and brevity. Several men approached me, and many sprightly boys, surprised to see me sitting there placidly on a bench with the broadsheet spread over my lap. They greeted me, Hello, mister. What's your good name? And then they stood in a semicircle around me, struggling with my half-voiced single-syllable name. Not so good after all. During the previous evening, on the road inbound from the airport, among all else I'd noticed, men and women laid out like the pattern of brickwork, sleeping in the dark open air. Now they moved upright, insistently, without ceasing, as if in a trance, slowly weaving through the paths of vehicles, sometimes with a single palm casually raised as if with a secret power that could slow or still traffic. Cars, bikes, buses, rickshaws, all of these moved in a choreography set to an endless cacophonic score in a scale I'd never heard before those shrill horns encouraged by signs painted onto the backs of trucks. An ancient mantra, I suppose. Horn okay, please. I joined the crowds, eyes wide open. No doubt I stood out at some intersections, unable to blend in since I came from afar, with my own culture and biases, unseen baggage that I could not hide since I wasn't entirely aware that I had it yet. Bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, I was ready to hear and see and feel new things in the months to come, jarring, irksome, enlightening things, 
tiring, hilarious, exceptional months. Already there were new voices, new declarations, new demands, new queries, new prayers. Few of these were addressed to me, and if I'd had any sense, if I'd not been in my early 20s, I would have felt well and truly out of my depth. But I'd been warned. I'd read parts of the Upanishads in the library back home. That book had said, Prana Bharat, life is immense. I was yet to learn exactly how correct that statement was, or the science behind it. But on that first morning I could look about me and know with some certainty that Bombay was big enough. The city was enormous. Mumbai was immense. Ten years ago today, I was somewhere in India. Perhaps by then I was in Pune, or Chandigarh, or Jaipur. Or maybe I was sitting around that apartment in the Shivastan building on 16th Road in Bandra, its shade offering respite from the sweltering heat. I was probably reading, or taking notes trying to sort out the cornucopia of colour and movement and noise that surrounded me everywhere I went outside of that grungy little apartment, the five compact rooms of which I remember so well, all except the front door, which has vanished from memory, meaning that as I go back ten years in my mind, I seem to suddenly lurch from some corner of the apartment into the streets, which seemed perpetually churned like the ancient seas from which life was born in certain Indian myths. But perhaps my memory works this way because it's precisely how it all felt. Throughout the entirety of the year 2011, I was conniving to leave my home. For a while I'd known I was going to go. It was time to sever ties, to try new versions of myself to untether myself, perhaps, to test boundaries, to taste doubt, delve into uncertainty and face fears. At last, I booked a flight that took me away from home in the last days of that year. I guess all journeys start with some improbable sequence of events. Some would say that every day of your life does. I reckon you can trace pretty much every action back to a chance occurrence. And like a river with its countless tributaries, the story of my arrival in Mumbai had various sources. But the most obvious place to start the story would have to be meeting that woman at an art show on a street corner in a distant city. At the end of a short conversation, she wrote her name in a notebook of mine, in an ornate cursive script. You will come and visit me some day, she said, deliberately sounding like a fortune teller because she was trying to assign me a fate. And I suppose she did that because she'd realised that I was susceptible to it. 
that I was ready for a disruption to my life. This was written all over my naive little face. Surreptitiously, I took to my office back home, learning some Hindi, tracing out with great effort the Devanagari script in which each character represents a syllable. So sentences were scrawled in decorative pictograms that hung down from a continuous top line, which in my case was always wonky, making all my statements in any Indian languages look somewhat unreliable. I looked over maps, read mythological and religious texts, and found poets past and present who spoke fiercely and faithfully in their own way of how the world had been made. This was how I prepared myself for a long period of time away from home. And all of these matters were accounted for in my journal, a simple black-covered sketchbook, a thick sheaf of blank white pages beckoning to be written upon, I don't like lined paper. My handwriting is infinitesimal, when I do it in my native alphabet at least. In my notebooks, each sentence of text looks much like that endless line of ants that made their procession towards the sugar bowl in my friend's apartment. I'd started that particular notebook at the beginning of the year in which I was to leave. Therefore, the tales I inscribed in it had an air of ready-made nostalgia for I knew a certain way of life was winding down. There were friendships that would culminate with a full stop, half-finished thoughts that would never get completed. I expected to mutate somewhat in my time away. This, in fact, was the whole point, and in the meantime another dream was squirming away in my guts, about to be revealed, and it was as if this was predetermined too, because it was what I was working on what I'd been working towards for some time. Such were the contents of my notebook, a long prelude to my departure from the bottom of the world in a blue dawn, one of those lingering summer mornings that I loved and which I was separating from. In the midst of all that, though, were the preconceived images and received ideas from which my version of India was made. After all, Chhatrapati Shivaji Airport was hardly the only place to which I could have gotten a one-way ticket. So I think I was trying to enter into a situation where I would be jolted awake, and nothing seemed more of a contrast to the comfortable elements of my home life than a country of more than a billion souls, where I was bound to find cultures and languages and religions intermingling like a palette of uncountable colours, and social and political expressions I'd never be able to encounter anywhere else on the planet. Each day I was in Bombay, I pulled on a pair of worn dress shoes and a dowdy button-down shirt and went out into the streets. Walking was my habit, a trait I'd picked up from a childhood in the bush. I strode around the city with that same gait, dead set on the idea that to get to know anything of a place you had to see it on foot, at walking pace with your eyes wide open. I would find my way out into the streets, through the congested arterial roads, into overcrowded neighbourhoods sheltered by endless tarpaulins and old advertising hoardings. The only goal I ever set myself was to find an idyllic roadside chaiwala from whom I could pointedly order a small plastic cup of sweet spice tea in what I believed were the right words in Marathi. Mala ek kap chai de. 
something like that. Standing by the stall, strangers would start up conversations with me. These were often brief if we were forced to exchange languages. But even if much of it made no sense, plenty of these meetings are nevertheless lodged deeply in my memory even today. The effect of all these elements seemed to be amplified now that I was so far from home. The warmth of other humans, the pleasures of language, and the efforts we each made to solve what is always quite a puzzle that of encountering another human being not exactly like yourself. One day I strayed into a strangely quiet open-air market in a district called Masjid. There I was met by a burly man in about his forties, who quickly announced himself, May Pagal Hum, he said again and again and again, May Pagal Hum. His jaw was clenched, and then he went ahead and opened his gob, and with a flick of his tongue he revealed several razor blades that were pressed between his molars. Lifting up his shirt, he showed off a dizzying fretwork of scars. Me pagalhum, he said again. I'm crazy. Give me twenty rupees. The bloke then tried to shake my hand. I don't think that I declined unjustly. I tried to move away from him, and in the end, some old uncles told him to bugger off away from me. It now appears to me that so many of the events of those weeks in Bombay were pressed deeply into my mind, and by now seem to have formed scars like those worn by the madman in the market at Masjid. If I ever go looking for a pattern to my experiences in India, this is the picture which ultimately comes to mind. I came and went from Mumbai multiple times as my months in India passed. I explored the surrounding state of Maharashtra and went further afield to Rajasthan and later I visited acquaintances at the university in Delhi and then travelled north beyond there. All of this involved long, slow and sometimes laborious train rides and I still have a fond memory of the sound of the old Indian Railways trains easing their way off the busy platforms. Kachunk, kachunk, they said. Kachunk, kachunk. I transliterated this sound effect into the Hindi script and printed it in my notebooks as I went. Privacy and solitude were rare qualities in everyday life in a city in India. I, of course, stuck out like a sore thumb, so no moment of the day was ever passed alone, which perhaps was the main challenge I encountered there. 
but generally have some solitary habits. But that doesn't really work out in a country of more than a billion people. Occasionally, though, on a long train ride, the movement would lull my carriage mates to sleep and I would get to enjoy a moment alone, looking out on the land around us. And I loved some of the countryside we saw. Yellow or ochre-coloured, dried out, ancient agricultural landscapes where wheat, potatoes, peanuts and mustard grew in earth that must have deteriorated over the years. Sometimes I would get surprised by a river. I relished the feeling that nobody I knew had a clue where I was. And even I, some of the time, wouldn't have been able to have found myself on a map. Not till we got to the next train station, where I could carefully figure out the name of the town from the Devanagri letters on the sign. Sometimes I saw that bright green bird in the eaves over a platform. A bee-eater, I think it was. I took it to be a symbol of my dislocation, a regular reminder that I was in a different sort of place. But I was comfortable in rural areas. I still vividly recall one landscape I travelled through, perhaps on the edges of Maharashtra, skirting the state of Karnataka maybe. I was eating a mandarin. And as the train coasted through crusty fields, I spat that fruit seed through the bars, which counted for windows on that train. Perhaps I hoped they'd land in the tilled dirt and sprout. Whatever the case, I was alone and unknown, acting out whatever gestures seemed suitable to me. Travel experiences, I suppose, are a mosaic of these moments. However, someone usually was having a yak with me. Their stories were sinuous, slippery and fluid, like streams in the monsoon. Each encounter felt like a rare chance to pull a separate existence apart from the madding crowds of India. So few lives are ever unwoven out from the shuddering mass of most of existence, so I suppose it's often a somewhat artificial activity, trying to pluck a single strand of story and jot it down. But at the time, these tales were like a tight focus on the plight of those who passed their days in this, the second most populous country in the world. It wasn't that I was some sort of anthropologist, that I was trying to make notes about the various rituals and networks in Indian society. It just felt like language was my only mechanism for making sense of anything that happened there. Countless things were continuously happening around me. Only some of the motion could ever be observed or absorbed by my conscious mind. Through writing I could put them at arm's length, perhaps. Externalise them in a form that was a bit easier to work with. It's hard to explain to those who don't often write, but the sensation of hunching over a piece of paper and spontaneously finding words that flow from within like fluid through your pen is at best semi-rational. It's almost mystical. Or at least that's how it felt, often as I wrote on my journey throughout India. Yet there was so much to try and get your head around. Too much, of course. A great jumble of hopes and dreams. A good deal of them underpinned by misery and humiliation. Social constructions and personal choices and laws and customs and resources and politics. The whole of it had roots that were far beyond my reach. I looked into the local religions, into regional politics. 
I read various newspapers daily and tried to comprehend the caste system and listened as much as I could, closed off though I was to most communities by all types of barriers, really. No doubt I got better at nutting out what I saw, but it remained mostly a mystery to me, and I sure never worked out how to talk about it. I realise that as I speak even now. My own most vivid encounter in Mumbai seems very simple on paper. A man, who looked no worse off than anyone else, came up to me with a hard glare. He put his hand out, gesturing for money, but he did so with a look of absolute contempt for me. He would not speak a word. It was as if he was demonstrating that he came from a much higher stratum in society than I did, and that he was simply collecting a tax from me. I awkwardly gave him a few notes, not knowing exactly what I'd handed over. And the unhappy ugliness of the exchange was striking, and in its way it's kind of fitting that this was a memory that clung to me over the course of some months, that framed some of my meetings in Mumbai. One of my friend's stories stayed with me too. She'd grown up wealthy in another part of India. She'd casually bounce cross countries between degrees in the nation's best schools. And she made it clear that she felt a general blindness to suffering was one of the prerequisites to surviving there. It may seem callous, she said, but how else would you get through the day? And yet sometimes someone's pain or shame would sneak through a crack in her protective shield and she would see it for what it was. We were out and about one evening, walking the Queen's Necklace, a coastal promenade along the Arabian Sea. When apropos of little more, she told me of something she'd witnessed a few nights earlier at a train station not far from there. Her mother in a black sari, she said, had caught her eye as she quickly moved away from her children, leaving them briefly alone at their encampment on the platform. She had drifted through the crowd to a far corner of the station, a shadowy spot, just about under the stairs. There she'd pulled the material of her sari around her and squatted down. A dark liquid began to pool around her feet. And when it finished flowing, the woman stepped out of her own urine and returned to her children. It was a minor moment, but sometimes it's these that sum up situations in their entirety. As poets know, the part so often tells the whole. My friend said she had seen street accidents, dead bodies by the road, and been less affected by this. Now she had cried the whole train ride, all the way home. In Bandra, I curled up on the flat bedroll in her room and we would trade ideas and philosophies throughout the night, in between bouts of sleep. Then I would get up at dawn to exercise my little rituals. Automatic writing over coffee and dosa, reading the English language papers down at the reclamation. But the news was always troubling, and I was reminded that in some Hindu traditions we were in an age called the Yuga of Kali, a sort of end times in which things slipped out of place, and it all went from bad to worse. For a young traveller unaccustomed to seeing what was currently around him, it was easy enough to believe. 
and now in vague association with some of these previous stories. I remember that one night my friend took me to a party, frequented by a bunch of people I would never know back home. Young professionals. The upper middle class, I guess. Entrepreneurs and marketeers and software developers and actors and journalists. You won't be surprised to hear that I was inappropriately dressed, far too unkempt for such a schmoozy crowd. But I tried to get into it, because I saw that I'd gained access to the glimmering edge of the city. This flashy, aspirational cohort, which represented so much of Bombay's dreaming. Behind the mouldy facades of the city, the cruel competition of education and work, as well as the fierce, almost impossible housing market, all the squalor and sadness and violence. There was this private coterie, sheltered and secure. And if you could only gain access to this, you had it made. Such was the predominant myth of Mumbai. As far as I could tell, if nothing else, the existence of this ostentatious display of disposable wealth was what drew so many people to the city in the first place. And they clung on, long after the likelihood of landing their dreams was gone. Not long before I'd gotten talking with an ambitious young man named Mahadeva Chandra. He was from the neighbouring state of Gujarat, and I thought he was talking to me to practice his English as many people my age did. But in fact, he seemed to be networking. Not that I could help him. He wanted to be a Bollywood actor. I could see that Mahadeva had modelled himself on one or another star from the cinema, and he had tolerably good looks. A long, almost equine face, tan skin that had been well cared for, Hair gelled into casual curls and spikes. He told me that some months earlier he'd said farewell to family and friends in his home village. And when I asked him about it, he described village life with contempt. It was so far removed from the wealth he'd seen on television, which had inspired him to upend everything and move to Mumbai. Why shouldn't that be my life, he asked rhetorically. I must admit that much of what he seemed to want was fairly unattractive to me. Many of his goals had materialistic outcomes, like motorbikes or a ritzy watch. And he also seemed to have a carefully formulated program as to how he was going to meet an appropriate woman, to marry her. And so much of that plan involved gaining enough money to make viable a love match, as he put it, although there seemed to be little love involved. I knew it was unfair of me to criticise him. For he was simply trying to join the same system that had made my own freedom. While I had come to India to trim away the unnecessary elements of my own version of modern life, Mahadeva had absconded from his small village in order to enlarge himself, to gain certain possessions and attain a higher status. Such, I thought, was the spirit of the times a symptom of some global ailment that I suppose I was only in the early days of trying to diagnose. 
and I don't know that I've gotten so much closer to understanding it since then. Though that same sickness rages at home and no doubt in Bombay as well. The party I was at was probably exactly where he wanted to be. But there was nobody much like Mahadeva around at this shindig. Nor, I'm sure you can imagine, was there anyone like the woman in the black sari. Or the surly bloke who bunged his hand out demanding arms from me. Or Mr. May Pagalhum for that matter. Meanwhile, I knew that it was somewhere I also didn't belong. I overheard one of my new acquaintances at this party called Mumbai, Sapna Nagar, a dream place. And I thought that may be so, but only in a sense meant by the religious manuscripts I'd read. Dreamers in Maya. Illusion. A smokescreen that obscured a less tangible, but more authentic kind of life. Sitting alone at this party, I thought on the ancient writings which had suggested that we were fragments of universal splendour. But only now, as we'd mixed together like glitter, were we aware of just how kaleidoscopic the whole thing was, I thought. Everyone was trying to find their place. Even then, you could see in the midst of such flux, there were some people straining to strengthen those old belief systems, to help them solidify but that couldn't work, I thought. You couldn't apply so many of those stories to this age. Feeling plaintive and left out at the party, I pondered this era, in which things might just keep on falling apart until all we're left with is close to nothingness. That might match the religious texts, I thought. But would it make us feel any better? Would it relieve anyone's suffering? At least no one would notice that I was so badly dressed, maybe. I couldn't fit in anywhere. But that was not the point. This was not my place. I was a wanderer, a wayfarer. Someone who'd come drifting in as if just to have a squiz. Even the sadhus, the old holy men who'd renounced the material world and whatnot, even they scowled at me. I hadn't been trying to be anything I wasn't. I was too naive to do that. But it seemed that whatever angle I was seeing it all from, I had it quite wrong. Which was frustrating. But I soon saw that this was the most useful lesson of them all. That to try and ascertain the truth about a particular place was practically hopeless. But you could nonetheless pay close attention to what you saw and heard, and to the yarns you were told and you never knew what you might eventually get from them. So my notebook got fuller and fuller every day.
One afternoon I was caught out scribbling in my journal and accosted by an older man with white hair and a curter like a dirty smock and laughter in his eyes. Brother, what are you writing? I looked down at the note I'd just jotted the transcription of a sign outside a nearby eatery which read, Rice plate is ready. The man interrupted again. Shadi shadi, brother? Are you married? Like so many others had, he asked me where my family was, as though it was some great shame to spend so much time alone. I'd given up trying to tell anyone I didn't think it was so shocking to be a solitary creature, but the dithering answer I gave him didn't convince him much. He smiled with a hint of pity and sarcasm. Yet even so, I could tell there was genuine warmth in what he felt for me. He told me to forget my notes. You can't go around foreign countries pretending to understand what you see, especially when you come from the West, he said. Why not write a nice love story? We Indians, he said, we like a good love story. He went on, especially here in Bombay. It may not seem the most romantic place on earth, but actually there is such potential for chance occurrences. You can glimpse the eyes of a woman through her headscarf, for example, and your heart is captured. Or perhaps you cast your vision across the street to another apartment and see there someone you might pine away for with dreams of marrying them. Arribap, he exclaimed. Oh my God. And then, of course, there was the romance of the chawl. He explained that chawls were the multi-storey department blocks I'd seen around the city, with shared verandas and common facilities. It was a specialty of living in Mumbai, which otherwise has one of the most stifling and stress-inducing housing markets in the world. Bye, he said, returning to his theme. Do you really believe that in this mad crush of humanity there is not daily an opportunity for falling in love? You haven't fallen in love yet, he asked. I quietly thought of the woman on whose apartment floor I was sleeping. She swore like a trooper and snorted when she laughed, and her ears curled out from beneath the hairdo she'd cut herself with careless hands. Her fingers and toes were long and her eyelids were heavy, and sometimes I thought I'd seen her once painted in a Mughal miniature from centuries ago. I smiled wryly to myself. No, sir, I said in reply. In love? No. Sorry. Not yet. But after another brief pause, I admitted that I had developed a pretty serious crush on the pre-recorded voice which announced the names of the station as you travelled on the local trains around Mumbai. In dulcet tones and in three languages, she would carefully enunciate which platform we'd be pulling into next. The next station is Dadar, is Lower Parel, is Charni Road. Now this is more like it, my new friend said, laughing generously. You must find her. Find that woman whose voice has been recorded to read the station names. It's like the old song says, 
प्यार दीवाना होता है मस्ताना होता है लव इज क्राइजी लव इज वंडरफुल इट्स ओब्लिवियस ऑफ हैप्पीनेस एंड सैडनेस यू गो टू इट लाइक अ मॉथ टू अ फ्लेम एंड इट बर्न्स यू राइट अप यू कैन हाइड बिहाइंड अ हंड्रेड वेल्स एंड स्टिल इट विल सी यू सी राइट थ्रू यू प्यार दीवाना होता है मस्ताना होता है He was still chuckling. Although they were both at base just a pair of swampy archipelagos, it wasn't as if Bombay had the innate romance of Venice. But it did seem like the city might be a locus for chance and coincidences. Even if there were some uncounted millions living within it, floating as if on a raft on that peninsula on the Arabian Sea. Maybe on the train, I thought. Maybe that's where I would happen upon Pierre, love, or at the very least come up with a good love story. Much later I saw a jacket photograph of an Indian poet named Arvind Krishnamurtra, and I convinced myself that this was the same grinning laughing gentleman I'd spoken with on the street that day beneath the sign that said rice plate is ready. It seemed unlikely, although it would have been altogether very fitting. flicking through the poet's works i found some verses that made me think of the caprices of romance in bombay at the railway station it went i ask if there's a train to where you are i'm told there is one but it's left already so as tomorrow's and the day after's at night like a colicky child our old bones tired desire keeps us awake put it to sleep if you can I'll do the same. And for now let's forget the railway station. Parking's not easy there. And the trains keep to no time. Back in Bandra my friend had her loud conversations with friends, young artists from all over the country, swearing in multiple languages and dialects. My friend pulled me aside. She had something of a love story to tell me. She said you won't believe it yar but one of these guys is my old flame I'm thinking of taking him on a hike to this place a sort of secret cave Of course I couldn't believe such a spot existed in Bombay but the way my friend explained it even there you could find openings to escape the chaos of the city you could sneak away into some secret realm which was still close to the peninsula's salt harvesting squid fishing past I was about to admit to some jealousy, to envying that journey to the cave. But then someone dropped a long neck of kingfisher and like the beer, the conversation and indeed the night fizzed badly and drained away. I realized then that the whole period of my time in Mumbai was disappearing rapidly. By now months had passed. Soon I would have to leave the city for the last time. In my penultimate days I tried to take in as much as I could. The temperature seemed to increase. Everything became more intense. I walked countless kilometers every day wearing out my dowdy dress shoes. 
I had somewhere read an old story of how an evil king once lost control of the world. He mockingly gave a comically small man permission to rule over whatever territory he could cover in three paces. But it turned out that this shrunken form was just one of Vishnu's avatars, and as he grew to the size of a god, those three paces spanned the globe. On the other hand, I had taken innumerable steps, but my knowledge of the city of Mumbai seemed to be diminishing. Upon further thought, I changed my mind about leaving. I sensed there was still a chance moment, or a coincidence that I'd missed if I took off now. I wished my friend would put on her fortune-teller's voice and say, There's an invitation around the corner. You must hang around for it. I decided I would stick around for another fortnight, for a few more weeks. I would try to meet the woman who provided the voice for Western Railways, who so calmly and clearly stated the names of the upcoming stations. Grant Road, Marine Line, Matunga Road. I called the airline to change my ticket, but they told me there was no way I could do it. If I cancelled, there would be no refund. In fact, that would incur an additional cancellation fee. I was already running low on money, and I was supposed to be travelling indefinitely. It felt like the decision had been made for me. But I still wondered if I wouldn't just somehow be forced to miss the plane, if it wouldn't just come down to a matter of fate. That seemed fitting for this land of mythology. I thought to go and place an offering at the temple of Ganesh, to make an act of worship to Lakshmi, to strike a deal with Vishnu, to ask for help from my old mate Krishna. Yet we reached the night of my scheduled departure, and my friend and I met up again and went to the South Indian restaurant downstairs for great platters of vegetable curry and flatbreads with chutneys and sweet lime sodas. From a dodgy liquor store we bought a bottle of wine from somewhere not far beyond the city limits. If it was my first encounter with the pleasure of terroir, it was not because of the taste of that drink, but because of the poetry of the phrase Maharashtrian wine. I think that once the bottle was finished, my friend put her head on my lap and drifted off to sleep. The music she always played at full bore was still blaring, and I waited as long as was possible before stirring her. And then we went downstairs together, to the crossroads, so I could catch a rickshaw to the airport. I hoped one wouldn't come. But then a rickshaw pulled up. And I stammered badly the polysyllabic name of my destination to the driver. Chahatrapati Shivaji Airport. It seems to me now that my friend held my hand as the rickshaw began to buzz away. If so, that can only have lasted a fraction of a second. And yet in my mind our hands stayed connected for some time. Minutes, maybe. Or hours. Or days. But I don't know exactly. Because I no longer had a notebook with me at that stage. All that's now left to me from those final hours is what's committed to memory, that most untrustworthy repository of all stories. I may as well say that the account of that day has turned into mythology. 
Or perhaps it's just become the love story that the grinning old uncle wanted me to tell. I started the habit of keeping a notebook when I was 18 years old. I can't remember what compelled me to do so, but it's without a doubt the greatest and most sincere commitment I've ever had in my life. I now have dozens of notebooks, in various shapes and sizes, all filled with scribbles and scrawls, observations on things I've seen, heard, said, dreamed, read, felt, invented and imagined throughout the course of my adult life. What I didn't realise was that this practice would have the most profound influence over me. I was developing my only real skill. I was training my reflexes, getting the hang of seeing the always moving multifarious world, noticing connections between this physical existence and the ideas behind it. I was inadvertently teaching myself to be a writer. More than that, in fact, I was creating a characteristic which has since become for me like breath or heartbeat. Almost everything I experience is eventually honed into something that can be converted into language. As you can imagine, this goes against most spiritual wisdom or practical advice about well-being. It's an exercise that is utterly futile and feels like it often enough to sometimes make me depressed. Life is immense and I will never have such expansive wisdom that I can take it all in. I will never write well enough that I can create anything that is equal to the world around me. Writing like this is, like any obsession, a limiting and even debilitating habit. I've had plenty of people tell me so, some of them very dear to me. 
and I've wanted to consider it carefully, but in the few milliseconds it takes to process such comments, I've already started to conceive of it in a sentence, converting sounds to letters, stringing together the words to try and make it clearer. It must drive some of my mates mad. But there's another unexpected side effect of all this note-taking. Naturally, I notice much more than I would if I didn't have my journal at hand every day. I'm constantly filtering sensory experiences to see what is beautiful or challenging or provocative. Colours, smells, movements, noises, textures, sensations of all kinds. I am thus almost constantly open to the world around me, and the craving to embrace it all for the purpose of storytelling is a form of meditation, maybe. Or it could be said that it enhances my consciousness, heightens my sensitivity to stimulations of the most banal or obvious kinds. Yet what's more is that I'm starting to believe that the preparation and process involved in jotting down my observations of the world has a tendency to provoke curious encounters. It's almost like note-taking makes things happen. It seems that nowadays, after all these years of telling stories, I'm prompting the chance meetings, the coincidences and spontaneous conversations that make up my days. In saying this, I realise I'm drifting closer to a rather supernatural vision of writing. And I can only defend myself by saying that I'm not the first person on the planet to believe this. That in fact many cultures hold their storytellers as sacred. And if you're still a bit unsure about me saying all of this, then just imagine me imitating Krishna as I do so, with a cheeky smile and shadowy wrinkles around my eyes. So I had cultivated this keenness and closeness with the world already, long before I went to India. I walked around my hometown and wrote about the humdrum days passing by as vividly as if I'd landed in a new place for the very first time. And I still have all those old notebooks, full with all the things I saw and the people I met, faces and shadows and birds' wings and stones and bricks and songs and gestures conjured up by assorted animals. I make sure they're kept always close by, even as I sleep. And yes, I flip through them frequently, checking back on anecdotes and dreams, revisiting the past to understand the present better. I've only lost a single notebook in all that time. It's unfortunately the one that I took to India ten years ago. About twelve months is missing from the archive of my adulthood, which amounts to countless words stories that have sprung up among friends and strangers alike, one-liners, addresses, snippets copied out from books, eavesdropped conversations, attempts to sketch the squiggles of other alphabets, email addresses and phone numbers, the names of newly found friends, names of plants and birds, hand-drawn maps with idiosyncratic landmarks, and my deepest, most introspective thoughts, the things that are shared between only myself and blank pages. It happened just before I came back to Bombay for the final time. There had been rumours of rain at last, so I wrapped my journal in a plain plastic bag for safekeeping and packed my rucksack for the return journey south. 
had spent two weeks in the house of a Rajasthani family who lived close beneath buzzing electrical wires, and when I left them, I left the book behind in the plastic bag. I immediately called one of the sons, Yogesh, who said defensively and definitively that he hadn't seen the book. It was not the last time I tried him, but the sense of loss sunk in immediately. It was like my heart was broken. There is one other evident byproduct of all these notebooks, which is a talent for memory. So many memories run deep in me. There are names that sometimes re-emerge from a decade ago unbidden. Glimpses or gestures that were hard to put into words and yet which are wedged into my brain somewhere. I have on one page somewhere the name of the woman who first invited me to India, or rather told me I was going there, as if she'd read the future from my forehead. Her name, which simply means beautiful, was written in a cursive and expressive style in her own hand, with a blue biro. And even when I have gone years without reviewing those journals, I've been able to recall precisely how her name looks in that ink. And a hundred associated stories have followed along with it, linked as if along the top line of the words in the Devanagari script. An emotion has welled up in me. So it is that I then wonder whose names are lost in that missing notebook, what memories I have entrusted to ink only to find that they can so swiftly be taken away. I know that not everything is retained in memory. I relied on writing to keep those experiences, and now, some of them, most of them perhaps, are missing. As I say, I tried to contact Yogesh several times about that lost notebook. His answers were always in an awkward and abrupt version of English, but they started to differ slightly over time. And in fact, at one stage, he gave me such hope that he'd found my notebook that I made another flight to India. I conjured up an elaborate itinerary to land in Delhi and take the train to Jaipur en route to Mumbai from where I would fly home. All in all, I had only eight days to pull off my coup. Yogesh said he could indeed make a rendezvous at the train station in Jaipur, but I had started dreaming about the notebook. In the dreams, however, the notebook had taken on too much moisture. The paper had swollen, the ink had smeared, the journal was covered in mould, or in some dreams it was covered in moss. I opened it up and everything was covered in vibrant green mounds, and in some places it put out coppery spore pods, the moss ready to reproduce, more effusive than any words. In another dream, Yogesh had somehow transliterated all my writing into the Devanagari script, or perhaps had translated the words to Hindi. I would need to learn a language in order to read my own thoughts, a test which I was not at all upset to undertake. Inevitably, the train got into Jaipur late. I stepped onto the platform, and of course Yogesh wasn't there. I tried to make phone calls, but he wasn't answering. Some hours later, I jumped onto the train to Bombay, empty-handed. And as it shunted away from the station, saying ka-chunk, ka-chunk, I felt an unbidden idea rise up from deep within me. 
I would remember what needed to be remembered. I saw the silhouette of my old friend as she was standing in the doorway of the central station in Bombay. We caught a taxi together to go out for breakfast, and were both pleased to realise that the other person still had so many of the same features we recalled from our time together, which was now some years in the past. And I supposed that I could never have written down everything about the way she spoke, or moved, or smiled. Her thin fingers were fidgeting inquisitively. Her long legs were taking up most of the back seat of the taxi. And her head was thrown back to laugh, punctuated with snorts. Her words were pronounced as I remembered. Her vocabulary was as curious and complete as I'd thought. And her voice was still singing, fluctuating between compliments and accusations as quickly as I feared. So the notebook was lost. But life goes on. Extraordinary. Immense. And the stories hadn't entirely drained away. They've stayed close to me all along. The years have since passed further. My friend in Bombay is married now. The other day I even discovered that Yogesh had got in contact with me, online. I never did get out of him what happened in Jaipur that day, why he didn't answer my calls. But the years have passed. It was a decade ago that I stayed with his family. And these days, Yogesh seems quite pleased with himself. He's just gotten a government job. I congratulated him, and a short while later he wrote back, Now what about this notebook, Bai? Should I send it to you, or throw it to the rubbish? Are bop. Oh my God. He still has it. He's had it all along. Apparently, the missing notebook may soon be on its way to me by airmail. If all goes well, I'll soon enough open it back up and see what really happened ten years ago. I will take in the names of long-lost friends, notes on the texture and light of my last days at home, and my thoughts and feelings in those first days when I got to Mumbai. And my memory will be examined. All those stories will come under the microscope or else I will find it full of moss, mould, or notes written in a language I do not understand.